Our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, to really get into this passage, I have to do a little history lesson, so bear with me, okay? So, shortly after World War II, uh, the world was breathing a sigh of collective relief. The war was over. There was a new era of prosperity on the way. It was peacetime, right? Until Winston Churchill, who was then the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, he gave a speech. It's a really famous speech. It's a speech in which he acknowledged, yes, World War II is over, and something is indeed taking its place, but it's not peace. He actually delivered this at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, not too far from where we are today. It was the alma mater of President Truman. This was March of 1946. He said, from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. This is where we get our phrase, the Iron Curtain. What he meant was that a new war had replaced the old one, but it was not being fought in the same way. The ideological influence of the Soviet Union was now entrenched against Europe and the United States, and it became a race to secure the allegiance of as many proxy states as possible in a worldwide uh, war of espionage. And it's a war that would play out for decades, really until 1989 when the Berlin Wall finally came down. Now, the era I've just described is commonly known now as the Cold War, and it fascinates me as a period in history because it was a period of almost unprecedented economic growth in the world, especially for the United States. Uh, and, and just underneath the surface, while the suburbs and the strip malls were spreading, and while MTV was getting up and running in 1981, there was a war going on. A war that truly affected every inch of the globe. A war that literally could have wiped out all life as we know it off the face 
of the planet, and most of the world lived like it wasn't happening at all. Now, why do I say all of that? Well, the Apostle Paul, who wrote Ephesians here, and he's actually concluding the letter to the Ephesians here, he ends with a reminder that we are actually living in the midst of a larger and older battle than even the Cold War. It's a war as old as creation itself. If you think about it, we can shop online and work from home, and in some ways, life is better than ever. feels like peacetime. But the Apostle Paul reminds us here that just because it isn't open doesn't mean there isn't conflict. And in fact, there's battle all around us, and the Christian life is a battle. This is the image Paul gives us here. And a moment's reflection on this statement, right, that life is a battle, may help us realize that we actually feel this conflict more than we know. Almost everyone I know is tired. And it's not just because we're busy. It's because each of us, every day, we experience a relentlessness to life. It's like a marathon every day. We know we aren't the people we should be, but we struggle to improve. Negative and angry or shameful thoughts, they come on us unbidden and unwanted. I mean, seriously, think of the amount of energy it takes to get through most of your days. And for those of us in the room who, who truly desire to follow Christ, like we're Christians, this is what we want, I know there are days I lay my head down and think, why was it so hard to have faith today? Why was it so hard for me to even, for, for God and His power and His love and, to even cross my mind? Why was that so hard today? And don't tell me that's just me. I know it's not. How many of us lay our heads down at the end of the day and feel like, I, I just went through a war today? Well, maybe you did. The Apostle Paul, this is his point. The Christian life is a battle, but it's a war unlike any other against an enemy unlike any other. It's a battle that is at our doors, whether we want it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, and we need to be prepared. This is Paul's point. So if you brought your Bibles with you, I want us to take a look at this passage together. This is our last message in the letter of Ephesians. So we're in chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. And the first thing Paul's going to point out to us here to prepare for this battle we encounter is to know our real enemy. This is his first point. Know your real enemy. Here's Paul in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, the first thing to note here, and, and this is more than just Paul, the whole Bible takes seriously the idea that the devil is real. You could read, you could read the Bible cover to cover, and everywhere you see that the devil is presented as a real person. He has many different names. Satan, which, which means accuser, father of lies, evil one, deceiver, tempter, ancient serpent, and, and many others. But all of these names are talking about the same person. He is not equal to God. He's a created being, but he's very powerful and cunning, and he's very real. 
according to the Bible. Now, I, I completely understand, depending on your background and what brought you here today, the temptation to scoff at that idea. Or at least to think, Andrew, yeah, that's true, I guess, but Satan's not even in my top ten list of problems right now. He's way down there. I get it. Our culture and our worldview, especially as, as modern Western people, we have a really hard time wrapping our minds around spiritual realities in general, let, let alone a, a devil. But when we truly examine the evils we encounter every day all over the world and throughout history, and, and I'm talking about real evils here, how do you explain them? Whatever you believe about evil, you have to account for its existence. What is it? Where does it come from? Why is it so bad? And you know, generally, if you were to ask like a materialist this question, what, what is evil? Where does it come from? Why are people bad? A materialist meaning someone who doesn't believe in any spiritual reality, no God, no devil, right? Nothing. There's just, just us. They would tend to say that people do evil things either because they aren't educated enough, they aren't rich enough, they don't have enough resources, or they're too zealous in their ideological conviction. It's really one of those three things, or some combination of the three. And I, I just don't find that particularly compelling. Surely the, those things will, will play a role, but do, do they explain things like genocide? Is that an education problem? Or the Holocaust? And what about our own experiences? What about our own family histories and, and, and the brokenness we've experienced? Our own inability to, to stop doing destructive things that we know we shouldn't do? but we do them anyway. From really big evils to really small ones, could it be that there is an animating force, there, there is a personal will that is set against us, who wants to see us destroyed, that takes our, our worst impulses and thoughts and desires and, and weaponizes them for maximum destruction? This is, this is the Bible's explanation for where evil comes from and our experience with it. The devil is real, and he's our most fundamental enemy, and his most powerful weapon, Paul points it out here, is lies. He's a liar. Paul calls him a schemer. It's the same idea. We, we, when you first encounter him in the Scriptures, it's in Genesis chapter 3. If you know that story, he presents himself to Adam and Eve, as a serpent. He's in disguise. He looks like just another creature in the garden. That's not who he is. Now, I know that that's confusing parts of that story, but just look at what that tells us about him. He comes sideways. He doesn't confront Adam and Eve. What does he do? He tricks them. And the first thing he says is a lie. He says, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Make no mistake, it's framed as a question, but that's a lie. It is meant to deceive. More than anything else, we must know our enemy lies to us constantly. Constantly. This is at the top of Paul's mind as he warns us about who our real enemy is. He's a liar. And he tells us lies to confuse us, to hurt us, 
and ultimately to destroy us. And He does this at every level imaginable. He does it to us personally. We've talked about that a little bit already. Imagine what Satan can do with a person if he can convince them that they are not loved or worthy of love. What could you do to that person? What could you do through that person? Now, we all struggle with thoughts like that, don't we? Like, I'm not worth it. I'm a failure. No one can love me. Where do you think those thoughts come from? Why can we never seem to get rid of them, no matter who we are? I can tell you they don't come from God. What can happen to a person who believes those lies through and through? It will destroy them and then destroy everyone around them, won't it? Maybe you've met that person. Satan does this culturally. Imagine again what he can do if he could convince a whole society that human beings are nothing but cosmic accidents, that there's no purpose to your life, there's no one watching out for you, you're a collection of stardust, and all you can do is maximize pleasure at every turn. That's the best you can do. What could you do with a society like that? What would that do to, say, the most vulnerable? What would that do to children, to the elderly? What does that say to those who are chronically ill or sick, who can't experience maximize, they can't maximize pleasure in their life? What does it do to the unborn and to women? What does it do to families and communities and other things that only happen through commitment through hardship? They don't always feel good. What happens to them? What about Christians and churches, you guys? Do you think Satan lies to us? Do you think he has a strategy for us? Lies like, ah, that part of the Bible, you can ignore that because I know better. You ever been tempted by that? I have. Or lies like, man, if we can just get the right person, the right party in office, then God can finally do what he needs to do. It's the one thing stopping our all-powerful God. This is a particularly dangerous lie, I think, that the church at large is tempted by. That we can accomplish God's mission through a political process. Or perhaps worst of all, most dangerous of all, how about this lie to the church? My real enemy is that person over there. My real enemy is that activist, that politician, that coworker, that person with the wrong yard sign, the wrong religious belief, the wrong clothes, the wrong lifestyle. That person is my real enemy. And if I can defeat them, my life will go better. If the devil can get the church to believe that lie, what could he do? What could he do? Incredible damage. The devil doesn't care who our enemies are as long as we lose sight of who our real enemy is and what he does. He lies. So ask yourself, what lies are you tempted to believe? What lies are you tempted to believe? What we should not do at this point, as we hear about and reminded of Satan and his lies, is think, yeah, look at all those people who believe those lies. No. Ask yourself, what lies are you tempted to believe? 
lies about yourself, lies about other people, lies about Jesus, lies about the Bible. What behaviors tell you you're believing a lie, even if you've never said it out loud? What do your actions tell you about the lies you're tempted to believe? You see, this is the front line of our battle with our true enemy. It is about truth and lies. And like all things in the Christian life, preparation for that battle requires training. We have to train for the real battle. This is where I think Paul goes, this is verse 13, where he goes next. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Some people actually wonder if while Paul was writing this, he's actually looking at a Roman guard and writing down the armor that he sees while he's in prison. And we could honestly take time to look at each of these pieces of armor and what they describe and what they're, they're meant to point out, but I, I actually want to point out just a few general observations here about this section in the letter. First, notice that these are mostly defensive images, and Paul really frames this whole discussion defensively. I think that's important. Notice he uses language like withstand, stand firm, stand. Th these are defensive postures. And then most of the armor itself is defensive, right? The breastplate, a shield, a helmet, belts that hold everything together. And we're told to hold fast to the truth as a defense against the devil's lies. That's the big idea. This isn't to say that the church is supposed to retreat into a little social club and to try to leave the world and the devil at the doors. That doesn't work anyway, and that's not what Jesus commands us to do. Jesus says you're salt and light. You're, you're an influence. You're a faithful presence, even in the darkness that you encounter along the way. But our posture is defensive with the devil. We don't go looking for fights with him. He's always coming at us. He's, he's testing our weaknesses. He's finding opportune moments to break into our thoughts and into our behavior and into our relationships. This is what Paul means when he talks about the evil day. That's verse 13. He says, so you can be ready for the evil day. The sense there is that there are specific times when Satan is particularly active in our lives. And we see this even in the life and ministry of Jesus. There's a moment uh, in Luke's gospel where it says Satan retreated and waited for an opportune moment with him. He does that with us too. And our preparation off the spot serves us on the spot. This is part of what Paul is getting at. This is why training is so important. We train in the spiritual disciplines off the spot so that when we're particularly vulnerable on those evil days, we're better prepared for them. And I, I don't think this is rocket science. I think we could go back and read the whole letter of Ephesians with an eye toward what are the commands, what are the instructions that Paul gives in terms of how Christians are to, what are, the, what are we to believe, what are we to, to live? 
And we, we could see those as, as engaging in the spiritual warfare Paul's commanding here at the end. For example, Paul reminds all believers early on that God loves them and has adopted them. He's telling them the truth. That's spiritual warfare. Saying, here's the truth. When we study Scripture together, when we pray together, when we sing over one another, when we sacrifice for and love our spouses well and our children well and our neighbors well, when we share our faith and work diligently for the flourishing of all, when we walk in sexual purity and we strive for reconciliation, literally all the things that are covered in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul says that's more than just doing the right thing. That's spiritual warfare. That's living the truth out in love. That's combat. That's defense against the lies of the evil one. And it's training. It's preparation for bigger and greater tests. And over all of this, Paul hints that we train together. All of these commands and the use here, they're all plural. Paul is adamant that we do this together, which makes sense, right? Because what army trains alone? You can't do that. And neither can we. We need other believers around us to be truth-tellers when Satan is lying to us, to be our eyes on our, on our blind spots that we all have, to be ears when we need, to be, when we need prayer, we need help. We're never meant to fight this battle alone. And perhaps one of the devil's most pernicious lies, especially to believers, is that we can do this Christian life thing alone. Cannot. But we do have one another. And we need each other to train better. Prioritizing one another, believe it or not, that, that simple act is actually protecting us from great evil. So ask yourself, where can you invite others to fight alongside of you? And for some of you, that that may mean taking a step forward toward relationships that maybe you've been nervous to engage in, joining a community group or a Bible study or a men's gathering, a men's prayer gathering or a 50 and better meetup, something simple, even like that, to begin to be around other believers who can do battle with you. For others, maybe you feel you you have those relationships and it's simply a matter of inviting those people into the areas and lies that you're tempted to believe and asking for their help. To ask for prayer, not in generic ways, but in specific ways, in your struggle against lies, which we all have. It may mean being vulnerable, actually, with other people and actually to become stronger And when we know our real enemy and we train for battle together every day, we can remember to stand in the real victory of Jesus. Now, you will not see the word victory anywhere in these verses, but if we take a step back and remember where we've been in this letter, the language of victory is everywhere. Jesus' victory actually is the foundation of the entire letter of the Ephesians and the entire Christian life. Just listen again to Paul here in chapter 1. I'm, I'm going I'm to read this again. This is chapter 1, verse 15 of Ephesians. Paul prays, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is so sure of Jesus' victory over death and his victory over the evil one, that he says Jesus is the name above every name. His victory is not only for this age, but the one to come. And his power is toward us. It's with us. It's for us. This has been the main message, again, of the whole letter. And then you get to chapter 6 and listen to this. Paul says something like this in verses 19 and 20. He says, oh yeah, and by the way, pray for me. I'm in chains. I'm in prison for the good news of victory over this present darkness. Does that look like victory to you? The most influential teacher of this early Christian movement is chained up. He's in prison in Rome for sharing his faith. And he's over here saying, listen, Rome is not our real enemy. And these chains that I wear, they've got nothing on Jesus' victory. In other words, for Paul... There is no contradiction between the chains on his wrists and the name above every name. In fact, they go together. Listen again, this is Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak then I am strong. What is he talking about? And for that matter, what, what, why does he talk about an army that just stands? Have you noticed that? That's all Paul tells us to do, stand. Literally, at the, in verse 13, he says, after you put on all the armor of God, just stand. Stand. What army stands? Don't, don't armies charge? Don't they conquer? Don't they destroy? As far as I can tell, the only army that stands is the one that's already won everything it needs to. And the only person who can say, when I'm weak, then I am strong, is the person who knows someone else has won the victory already. We stand in Jesus' victory. And it may not feel like victory, You may be sitting here thinking, Andrew, my life doesn't feel like winning. Andrew, look at these chains in my life. I know. I know that's real. And our enemy, he's real. He wants to hurt us, and he does hurt us. But he has, and those chains have, nothing on the name above every name. This is what Paul is modeling. has nothing on the name above every name, the name that can give you rest. Think about it. How strange a battle cry is it 
from Jesus, who says to those who would follow him, who are on the front lines of this war, what does he say to us? He says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We don't have to win. Jesus already did. And against the devil's lies, we stand on that promise together. That's what we do. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a minute and pray together. As an act of spiritual battle, I want us to contend in prayer together. This is one of our main disciplines to fight the lies of the evil one. And so whatever you're doing right now, whatever's in your hands, just put it down, set it down. I want us to focus down. And if you would, bow your heads and pray this with me. Jesus, Lord and Savior, name above every name. We stand firm in your victory this morning. We speak that victory over and against the lies of the evil one. Lies like we are not loved, we are not adopted, we are not co-heirs of your kingdom. Lies like we cannot change, that there's no hope, and that we're all alone. Lies like God does not protect us, is not for us, and is not with us. Instead, Jesus, we know the truth. The truth that we are bought at a price. That we're ransomed from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into your glorious light. That even in the hardest moments this life has to offer, we are never alone. You go before us and behind us and above us and below us. Our strength is renewed like the eagle's. And we have a kingdom inheritance, a life to come that is so glorious. Were we to see it now, we wouldn't believe it. From the foundations of the world, you've prepared us for this moment. To hold these truths and to show them to the world. You love your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And every promise here, the ones that we name, the ones that we know, and even the ones we don't, are yes and amen in you. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to lose in your victory. So arm us today with your power, the power of grace, the power of forgiveness, the power of loving our enemies, the power of sacrifice, the power of service, the power of the cross, and of the empty tomb. Hear our prayers, Lord Jesus. We pray them in the only name that matters.